Welcome back, everyone, to another segment of Rabbi Jeff's Spirit of Abishir, where we attempt to understand the meaning behind the instructions of our sages and how it's relevant to our lives today. We do this, of course, using the thoughts of our teachers before us and try to make them applicable to our times. Feel free, please, to contact me with any comments or questions at rjfromlj at aol.com. The Perky Office Podcast is a project of the Intentional Jew Podcast Network, where we actively encourage Jews to think and engage in the search of how to be intentionally Jewish. Check us out on intentionaljew.com. Okay, today's rabbi is Rabbi Yossi HaKohen, was student number three of the of, of the five students of the five students of um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And this student, as we learned, that he was Mona Shvachan, he talked about their, um, their praise, and the praise that he gave about this student was he called him a chassid. He called him pious. Now, the only problem with pious, with calling him pious, and, and let, me, let me throw in also, if you remember, we talked about what was going on in the next Mishnah, and the next Mishnah where he says, sends them out to figure out what is the best way that a person should uh, should act the best way a person should live in his lifetime, and um, the, the, he comes back with that the best way that a person should live is he says being a shochen tov, being a good neighbor. And what's the worst way for a person to live? The worst way for a person to live is to be, of course, the opposite of that, which is a shochen ra, which is a bad neighbor. Okay, so. My first problem with it is, is that what exactly does that mean that he calls him a chassid, he calls him pious? And my problem with calling him pious is, is that almost all the other rabbis are some kind of academic accomplishment, certainly the ones that we saw, and one of the others that, we're, that we haven't seen yet, they're really academic accomplishments. They, they talk about their, you know, even though we said that that was objective learning, it's not just about a memory, but nevertheless, it's about a style and learning. And when we talked about um, the second one, so we said that Ashrei Yolatito, right, that praises one who gave birth to him, and we said that um, that he learned the lessons of sensitivity, a perceptiveness that really helped him in his learning. Okay, beautiful. But what does chassid have to do with learning? What, what does chassid have to do with an approach to scholarship, an approach to understanding that he would praise his student with chassid? He's not talking about the frumkite level of a student. He's not talking about his students as being, as being wonderful Jews. He's talking to them as being amazing students, and he's talking about their learning qualities. So what does chassid, what does piety have to do with a learning quality? Why would Rabbi Yossi Cohen be the one to say that what's the best quality that a person should develop, the best pathway that a person should go down in his lifetime, is Shachin Tov, a good friend? What did yesterday's tell us? He told us a, a, a Chavar Tov, a good, a good friend. Now, a good friend is better than a good neighbor, one would think. Much more general, it means being a good friend to everybody in the world. Being a good neighbor is talking to a very specific swatch of people, the people that you are, in fact, neighbors with. Anybody else doesn't fall into the category of being a good neighbor. Why is that a quality to strive for? You know, you, you, should, you should learn how to brush your teeth really well. 
that's like really amazing. Okay, it's, a, it's an important accomplishment, but in the larger scheme of things, it's just the detail in the larger scheme of things. Why would that be a thing that he focuses on and says, this is the Derek Yeshara? And why would that come out of his existence, his lifestyle? No, it's come out of being a chassid. What do you, how do you translate that into the world, being a chassid? You translate it into the world by being a good neighbor. I don't know what the, what the connection between them is. And then, of course, bad neighbor by extension. Why is that the worst characteristic? I can think of worse things to be. There are some really nice people that are really cruddy neighbors. But, but it doesn't really make them bad people necessarily. It really does make them bad neighbors, but it doesn't make them bad people. Okay. Obviously, what's the key to understanding Rabbi Yossi HaKohen? Understanding what a chassid is. Because there is a difference between a chassid and a tzaddik. And I think we need to uncover what exactly is the difference between a chassid and a tzaddik. So the way the Masil Shisharim describes it, and the way that most people would describe, a tzaddik, a righteous person, is a person who lives by the letter of the law. A person who punctiliously, carefully, precisely follows the letter of the law. And who is a chassid? A chassid is not a guy in a long black coat, furry hat, and long stringy payas. That's not a chassid. I mean, it, it is, but that's not what, what chazal mean when they talk about chassidus. When Chazal talk about Chasidus, they're talking about piety. They're talking about, as the commentaries say, Lifnim Meshur Sadin, beyond the letter of the law. And a Chasid goes beyond the Tzaddik. The way it's described in the Svarim, the way that many people deal with it, is that you reach the level of Tzaddik and then you get to the level of Chasid. The Mesil Shisharim breaks down his book, The Path of the Just, with Moshe Chaim Luzato says that the first half of his book is talking to the tzaddik. The second half of his book is talking to the chassid. And that's the reason why most people don't make it to the second half of the book. Because they're still working on becoming a tzaddik. They can't worry about becoming a chassid. And, and I'm, I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's not so tongue-in-cheek. Because many people approach the book of Mesil Shasham and they only learn the first 12, 13 chapters. Up to the end of what's called cleanliness. Up to the end of what's called nikius. And then the other chapters, which deal with Pishos, Tara, Kedusha, those chapters many people don't even never touch because those are the chapters of Chasidus, those are the chapters of piety. The Mesir Shisham says, brilliant, he says that the reason why he advocates that you should learn those, the second half of the book, is because even though you haven't mastered Sidkus, you haven't mastered righteousness, but there are things in chasidus, there are things in piety that you can still apply to your regular day-to-day life. And therefore, he, he feels it's a good idea to continue to do that, even though you haven't reached being the tzaddik yet. So the way, clearly from what he's saying is, is that tzaddik comes first and then comes chasid. So I want to ask you, it seems that a chasid is higher than a tzaddik. But I have a, I have a real problem with that. My problem is like this. We have a statement that says, that's actually when you think about it, is a little shocking. But Chazal tell us that Godol HaMetsuva Vaosa Me'enu Metsuva Vaosa. That a person who is commanded to do something 
and does it is greater than a person who volunteers to do it. Now, if you think about that, you would think it would be just the opposite. This person is obligated to do it. doesn't have any wiggle room. can't get out of it. You have to do it. But this person who's not commanded or obligated to do something and volunteers for it, wow, how magnificent is that? That you put yourself in a situation where you have a responsibility where you did not have that responsibility. And therefore, the mitzvah v'osa, we, we, it seems in our minds, logically, that the person that's not commanded is much greater. You know, we look at converts and we say, wow, how amazing is a convert? They had no obligation. Look, we were born Jewish. We don't have a choice. We're sort of stuck into this thing, but they could have done anything. You know, they could have still be sitting in restaurants and doing their thing on Friday nights. And, you know, they didn't have to worry about this. And we look at them and we say, wow, isn't that amazing? How magnificent. And in the end of the day, as beautiful as that is, the one who's commanded is considered greater. How could that possibly be? So if I haven't mentioned this yet, it's only because I'm, I've gotten sidetracked. Because this is one of the things that I speak about very often. David Amelech had a Rebbe by the name of Shimi ben Gero. And if I spoke about it already, it's good Chazara. David Amelech had a Rebbe called Shimi ben Gero. Shimi ben Gero, make a, story, a long story short, cursed David. David Amelech was obligated to, to punish Shimi ben Gero because he was a Mori ben Malchus. He rebelled against the king. David Amelech decided he was going to not deal with it right now. On his deathbed, he calls his son in and he says to Shlomo Amelech, the last will and testament go get Shimi ben Gera, but use your wisdom to get him. Shlomo Melech comes up with a plan. He says to Shimi ben Gera, calls him in, and he says, you are obligated to stay in the city of Jerusalem. You are banished to the city of Jerusalem the rest of your life. If you step outside, you're going to get killed. Shimi ben Gera, a few years later, one of his slaves runs away. He runs after his slave out of Yushalayim. Shlomo Melech, you know, the, the warning cameras go off, the warning bells, the alarms, they catch him, they kill him. Everybody asked, everybody asked the question, what was in Shimi ben Gera's mind? He knew that if he walked out of Yerushalayim, he's going to be killed. Don't tell me he was going after a slave because, you know, there are plenty of slaves in Jerusalem. Was, he, could have gone, he, he could have gone like in, in America if you need to get workers. So you go to Home Depot, right? certainly in San Diego. Right? You, need to, you need to get somebody to, to, to help you. And yes, they're waiting outside of a certain culture, is waiting outside of, of uh, Home Depot, and you go and you, and you get them. Great. So I'm sure he could have found somebody to help him. He didn't need to go running after this slave. Why did Shemagera leave? Because Shlomo Melech knew in his wisdom, the minute that he said to Shemi ben Geri, you have to stay here, that was the minute that Shemi ben Geri was going to leave Yerushalayim. Now, it might have taken three, four years, but he was going to leave Yerushalayim because we are that way as human beings. You tell us, yes, there's something inside of us that says no. I mean, how many times in your life did it ever happen? that you thought of an idea and then somebody told you to do that idea and all of a sudden it became a bad idea. When you think of it, when it's generated internally, when you are a volunteer, it's much easier. But when you are obligated to do something, you have to fight against your natural tendencies to not to want to do something, your natural tendencies to be in control and not to be controlled by someone or something else. It's a natural tendency. To, to buck and, to, and to, to balk 
at being controlled, at feeling that you're being controlled. And for that reason, Shlomo Melech knew and understood the nature of Shimi ben Gera and understood that it would be it would only be a matter of time until he left. I was given mushal, and I say that you know you you send your kids to um, you you tell your kids you're going to clean cleaning the house or cleaning the garage on a Sunday. You look around for your kids and they're not there. And three hours later, the kids show up. And where were you? I was in my room. What were you doing? Oh, there was so much to do in my room. I just got distracted. I had so much to do. I had emails I had to answer. I had so much. I just had so much to do. One time your child gets out of line and you punish them. And you banish them to their room. 30 seconds later, the door opens and the kid says, Can I come out now? And you say to the kid, No, stay in your room. But I'm bored. There's nothing to do in my room. Wait, are you in the same room? Because last week when you cleaned the garage, you seem to have found many, many things to keep you busy the entire day in that room and not to come out to the garage. Now all of a sudden, 15 seconds, you can't keep yourself busy. You can't find something to do there. And they are absolutely correct. There is nothing to do in that room because they have to stay in the room. And because they have to stay in the room, that becomes a massive challenge. When God came to us and commanded us to keep the Torah, that placed a burden, a challenge, that placed a pressure on us that added a level of difficulty to every single thing we do. And that's why Godel Hametsuva Vaosa, a person who is commanded to do something, is actually greater than a person who's not commanded. Because a person who doesn't have that pressure has an easier time at doing the things that they need to do. But a person who has that pressure has to fight against that pressure, has to be able to climb over that pressure to get into what they're doing. That's the reason why. A mitzvah, a person who's commanded, is, is, is on a higher level than a person who's not. Which means that the chassid is not on a higher level than a tzaddik. Well, if he's not on a higher level than a tzaddik, why is he placed always after a tzaddik? Why is it a tzaddik and then a chassid? I understand that the chassid is not a volunteer. We're not calling the chassid a volunteer. Because if we were calling him a volunteer, it would be Pashat that a tzaddik would be greater than a chassid. We're saying that a chassid is greater than a tzaddik. But if he's greater than a tzaddik, and he is not, it's not that because he's not a mitzvah of Osa, it's not because he's not commanded to do it, then in what way <coughs> is he greater than a tzaddik? So I want to say that both of them have pressure. The tzaddik's pressure is external. The tzaddik's pressure is because the Torah tells him he has to live a certain way and he feels the pressure to live up to that expectation that God has of him. He feels a pressure to follow the commandment the way he's supposed to follow the commandment to do the rules he's supposed to do. The chassid also has pressure. But the chassid's pressure is internal. The chassid looks at himself and he sees himself short. He's done his obligation. He's done what he has to do. 
He has no pressure from God. At this point, there's no expectation. He's done what he has to do. But has he done it the best way? Has he done it the most precise way? Has he dotted the I's and crossed the T's? Has he done it in a way that, that adds to his love of God? Is it, is it done in a way that connects him more to God and to Jewish people? The chassid goes beyond the letter of the law, but that in itself is the law. The law is, is that you have to push yourself, and the chassid is now in that zone. He's done what he has to do. He's reached his obligation, but now he's pushing himself, which is also part of his obligation. But it's not expected. There is no, there is no cap to it. There's no sheer. There's no size. And now the pressure is coming not from fulfilling the rule. It's not coming from God. Now his pressure is coming from himself. It's coming internally. That is even a greater pressure. To perfect ourselves, to be, to live with our own integrity, that's even greater because that doesn't have a cap. The Torah has a cap. Do this, stand here, drink this much wine, eat this much matzah, have a lulav this size, your sukkah has to be this way. There is a shear. Shabbos starts now, Shabbos ends here. But how you fill that, with what kind of energy you put into that, with how that connects you to God, that there is no commandment. That's where the chassid steps in. And that pressure to perfect what you're doing, that's a tremendous pressure. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai looked at his student, he looked at his student and he said, Rabbi Yossi Akoim, he's got the personality of a chassid. That means he has a sense of his own integrity. He has a sense of his own desire to perfect himself. And that's a quality in learning. Because such a person will leave no stone unturned. Such a person will not walk away from a situation until he has a full and clear understanding of that situation. Such a person will go over and over his material. He's gone over it once. He's got a general understanding. He's checked his box. He's done. He's a tzaddik. But now he looks at me and he says, but it's not crystal clear to me. And to make it crystal clear, that requires a chassid. In our yeshiva, in their soul, there was a fellow who I remember when I came to see the yeshiva, they pointed out this guy to me and they told me that he has a shvacha cup. I don't know why they told me that. It could be Lashonara, but it doesn't matter. Shvachakot means he has a weak head. Not the, not the most, not the biggest genius in the yeshiva. And then over the Shabbos that I spent there, I saw the respect that everybody gave him. They treated him almost like a Rebbe. He was, he was you know, two, three years older than I was. And he was a person of, of incredible accomplishment. I said to somebody, what do you mean he has a shvachakot and he has a weak head? So they told me that if you walked into the base Medrash at 3 o'clock in the morning, you would find him in the base Medrash. And you would find him, it was a very, very big base Medrash, and you would be walking back and forth and back and forth, pacing back and forth, back and forth. 
talking to himself. Because he never understood things quickly. But he would go over them and go over them and go over them until he understood them clearly. And when he understood them clearly and could say them over to himself, that's when he would go to sleep. And he did this every single day. That midah, that characteristic, translated itself into his religious life, but it translated itself into his learning life. And he was a chassid. He was a person who put tremendous pressure on himself to be able to perfect himself, to be able to make himself a better person, to be able to understand things in a better way. That's who Rabbi Yossi HaKoyim was. When Rabbi Yossi HaKoyim was asked, what's the best way to live? Rabbi Yossi HaKoyim says, be a good neighbor. See, be a good friend. There are rules. Don't speak Lashon Hara. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't embarrass. There are rules. But with a, with a shachin, with a neighbor, there are no real rules. There's no, there's no real, you know, you have to, you have to love your, your neighbor, your, the, the guy you're shocking. There's no rules in it. There it's about chasidos. It's about being the best person that you could be. The only rules that exist by a shachin are actual rules, meaning that if a wall falls down between our two houses, this is who is obligated to put it up. If I want to encroach on your property, this is my limitations. If I'm making noise in my apartment, then this is the this is the rule of how much noise and when I'm allowed to make it. If I am looking over into your apartment and I'm causing you an inability to be able to use your apartment, so you or to use your backyard, then there are rules. But it's all about defined rules. It's all about sadic. But being a good neighbor is not about the rules. Being a good neighbor is about my own integrity, about my wanting to be the best that I could be, my wanting to develop with somebody who I have no reason to have a relationship with. I don't have to have a relationship with you. You're not part of in the intense sense. I don't have to be your best friend. But I'm pushing myself because I want to be the best. I want to be the best Jew. I want to be the best human being. I want to be the best that I can be. Because that's what God gave me. And that's a chassid. It translates from your learning life to your living life. That's who Rabbi Yossi HaKohen was. That's my spiel for the day. Okay, I'm, I'm going to open the floor. If anybody wants to ask a question, you know, no, nobody feel captured, captured. So, you know, you want to go, you go. You want to stay is great. Um, just schmooze a little bit, and if, if if I have no questions, I have a beautiful idea to share on the Pasha. Well, Rabbi, I, I, I have a comment, but I still want to hear what you have to say about the Pasha. Okay. <laughs> I, want the, I want the best of both worlds. Uh, what, what you said reminded me of a, not, not a, an indirectly related story, uh, to putting on a lane to fill in. Who, who has more merit to lay to feel in? Is it the boy who's bar mitzvah 
or a, a, a young boy that hasn't been bar mitzvahed yet. And you can say, well, the, 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 the young kid, he's not even bar mitzvah, and he's putting on his tefillin, doesn't he, putting, doesn't he have a great merit? Whereas the other guy has his bar mitzvah, and he's obliged to do it. So who has the more merit? And the answer is, from what I heard, it's the bar mitzvah kid, because he has the yitzhara. He has, he's got it. the mitzvah, along with the mitzvah, he has the yitzhara. Right. That's, so and that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. The challenge of knowing that you're obligated to do this is very, it makes it, it makes it a whole different game. That's correct. Okay. okay, I'll share a quick idea. And it's something you can say over at a Shabbos table. It, it's, and it's something that you can, you can carry with you also. It's a very, very beautiful idea. This week, uh, I mean, it's, it's about last week's parish. I apologize. Because this week's parish in America is parish is Nosso. Um, but it's a but it's a it's a universal idea. The, the in last week's pasha we had the twelve tribes, and the 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 twelve uh, princes of the tribes, and they brought gifts to the temple, and and the, each day it tells us the gift that they brought, and it says it exactly the same way. This is the the leader of the of the um, of the tribe, and he brought this gift, and you know six psukim worth of gifts, and it tells exactly what he brought. Nice, beautiful gift, and then it says this is the this is prince number two, and this is the gift that he brought, and beautiful. And Prince number three, and it's just repeating what the first guy brought, what the second brought, and it's just it's, it's you know some eighty some odd extra psukim in the Torah. Now eighty some odd extra psukim in the Torah is a lot. Parshas Yisro is seventy six psukim. This is bigger than than Parshas Yisro. Nitzavim vayelech are two parshas that are that are put together, and they're still not as big as that section of the Nesim of the Prophets. It's the longest, it makes Nasa the longest passion Torah, 176 Pesukim. It's as long as the longest Gemara, which is Bava Basra. It's as many verses as the longest chapter in Tehillim, chapter 119. Why would the Torah repeat itself like that? Torah doesn't repeat itself. Torah is economy of words. Why would the Torah repeat itself? Why just say it over? Why not just do it easy? This is what the first guy brought, and so did all the rest of his buddies. And if you need to know their names, this is who they are. You could have done that in one more two extra verses. You didn't need 85 extra verses. Torah is telling us a powerful message. Torah is telling us is that it looks on the surface that every one of them brought the same gift, but it's not true. They all brought something very, very different. Because each one of them put their own unique personality and talents into what they brought, and it changed it completely. It's a fabulous idea that we all daven exactly the same. We use the same sitter. We keep Shabbos the same way. We do our mitzvot the same way. We make kiddush. We do, we do the things we do, and it just sort of seems like we're robots. We're doing what everybody else is doing. We're just plugging into the words. No, not at all. The trappings, the outer trappings are the same but we change them dramatically by putting a little bit of ourselves into what we do. And every bit of ourselves that we put into what we do changes what we do to become something very personal and very unique. And, you know, sometimes we, we get struck with the fact that, you know, everybody's doing it, but everybody does it their way. And our job is to find our unique way, our unique talent, our unique place in things and to put our energy into them. But I'll take one more step. 
Who was the hero in this story of the pri of the of the princes of the tribes? Was it prince number one or prince number two? So I think, without thinking too deeply, you would say prince number one. There was no rules about what kind of gift to bring to the temple. You know, it's like you got you got to go buy a present. You know how much anxiety you have trying to figure out what kind of present to get. That when you decide what kind of present, then you know what kind of store to go to. And then you know which department to look at. But until you make those decisions, you have no idea. You know that you have an obligation to bring a present. So this guy knew he had to bring a present, but he didn't know what. And then he, def he des defined and, and he put together this amazing, amazing gift. He's the hero. Uh-uh. Number two is the hero. Because number two looks at number one and he says, oh, that's what you're bringing? I'll see your gift and I'll raise you one. That was a beautiful gift. You brought one kugel and a cholent. I'm going to bring three kugels, four salads, and amazing cakes. But then he said to himself, you know what's going to happen? What's number three going to bring? If I bring more than number one, number three is going to have to bring more than me. And by the time we get to number 12, it's going to be out of control. You know what? I worry about number 12, and I worry about number 11, and I worry about number 10. I'm just going to do the same thing as number one. I'm going to give up my notoriety. I'm going to give up my uniqueness. I'm going to say that, you know what, to protect number 12, I'm going to do it the same way. And instead of my gift being different, my emotions are going to be different. My motivation is going to be different. My energy is going to be different. And in that, my gift is going to be amazing. Not because I've changed the material, but I've changed the place that it comes from. I've changed the energy in that gift. And that's the challenge. The challenge is not to be unique by changing. The challenge is to be unique by finding the, within the context, within what we're given to do, to find a place to put our energy, fitting in very much with what we're talking about today, to find a way to excel within the context of what we have in front of us.